Well, if social relationships galvanize, incentivize sports fandom, like that's what you're doing it for the social relationships, then fans should have more friends. They should have a stronger social infrastructure. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University sports podcast, where we talk about the business of sports. I'm Tom Richardson, and normally I'm joined by my co-host, Joe Favorito, but Joe is out for some business today, so I'll be doing this solo, and we will uh, not have any upfront banter about the developments in the industry all week. There's been a lot going on, but there's one constant that affects all of us in the business, something we think about all the time, something we study in our program at Columbia, and that is the changing nature of fandom um, that has been quite an interesting thing to study. And we've seen companies like Sports Innovation Lab out of Boston and other strategy groups really try to attack this really interesting discussion because it's kind of at the intersection of sports and media and culture and social and psychology. So there's a lot going on with it. So we are really lucky today to have a, a, a guest on who is at least um, based on the new book he just published with his co-author is uh, right in the, in the spotlight of this whole discussion around fandom. So we were thinking about uh, how we would tee this up. And I did a pre-call with our guest, who I will introduce in a second. And what we realized quite quickly is that this is a big topic <laughs> and there's a lot to be addressed. So we're going to try to um, have a conversation, not just about the actual book, which our guests will talk about, but also kind of the larger topic of fandom and all the psychology around it, because it really is an interesting topic. So I'm really happy to welcome to our show today a self-described, and I like this in his LinkedIn profile, author, storyteller, marketing strategist. I like that. Um, it's an executive with uh, a ton of experience in the world of marketing, consumer insights, having been an executive at Madison Square Garden, NBC Universal, and publicists, and in the early days of digital marketing at Modem Media for, for those old timers who can remember Modem, uh, which was one of the top agencies back in the 90s in digital media. We're talking about uh, David Sikoriak, and David and his friend Ben, who he'll mention, just published a book that was literally published a few weeks ago called Fans Have More Friends, a, a great title, kind of provocative. And we reached, Joe and I recently heard about this and we're really fascinated by it. So we're really pleased to welcome David to the show. David, I appreciate you being with us. Thank you for having me. Okay. So let's, let, let's kind of get some context around this, starting with this question of you were a professional strategist, essentially, working at these different companies yep. and agencies. You have your own consulting company now, Dexterity Consulting. You're working on some really interesting stuff, from what I understand. What was the impetus to do the book? So it, I'm guessing yep. that it must have been a little bit of like the, you know, you as a sports fan, you as a coach, et cetera, combined with your professional knowledge and insights that you've gleaned through the years in marketing. Is that a fair? Yeah, thing? you know, there, there's a there was like a confluence of events um, that that were leading to this. So I was at Madison Square Garden, and Ben, my co-author, um, who is now at Fox Sports, was a consultant I was using back then. And we started with this this insight as to be a fan is to be part of a community. Right? Any sports fan will tell you, I'm you know, my my dad brought me up, or my friends, and and all the good stuff that comes with fandom. And we sat with it, and we we thought about it, like the implications of it. 
And one of the implications we were talking about at that time at Madison Square Garden was, well, we do a lot of garden to the fan communication. And what we need to also worry about is fan to, enabling more fan-to-fan connection. Because if there's fan-to-fan connection, then the, the following that sport is going to be stickier. It gives you the incentive um, to, to watch, right? It, it is it is sports fandom is a social enterprise. So fast forward, I, I leave Madison Square Garden. I'm doing consulting work. I become a consultant and uh, working for Ben, who, is, who moved over to Fox Sports. And we were looking in other verticals. We would study baseball fans. Similar insight, be a fan is be part of a community. We would study daytime talk shows, you know, so people are watching Skip and Shannon or Stephen A debate the the days, uh, debate the Cowboys and LeBron, um, typically what goes on in those shows. What's motivating them? Well, it, it's really about the social connections that these, these sports conversations enable. Um, we looked into sports betting. We looked into uh, the World Cup in 2018. We were, we were circling around this insight that, that social relationships were actually the incentive to go deeper into fandoms. As we saw various fans in various contexts, we do ethnographic work. I'd spend time with them. I went to games with families of six and father, son, that three generations of Cubs fans, all these nice, rich, um, vibrant contexts. And we were, we were sitting there. It's like, we have something big that's right before all of us. Can we make it bigger? Can we push on this a little bit more? And so we sat around and like, well, let, let's like, how could we test this? How, we, how can we put this in quantitative and really test this on a population level, right? Our hypothesis was, and we had to distill this hypothesis over time was, well, if social relationships galvanize, incentivize um, sports fandom, like that's what you're doing it for the social relationships, then fans should have more friends. They should have a stronger social infrastructure. So long story short, we 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 devised a methodology to measure one's fandom along a, a scale um, to see the, those that are not engaged to those that are, are very engaged or highly engaged. And then we we developed a, a various batteries to test social infrastructure. So how many friends you have and you know the way I could spare you the details of how we, how we did it, but there's various questions to kind of circle around the same point of like, how how engaged are you? How many people you have in your network, and so on. And from the very first survey we ran in 2019 to the ones that are in field right now, um, where we've we've run dozens over that time. Every survey, the bigger fan you are, the more friends you have. The bigger fan you are, the more you value those relationships. The bigger fan, the more you interact with those same very friends. And then we play it on family. The bigger fan you are, the closer you report being to your mom, to your dad. Um, to your brothers, uh, sisters, um, spouse, kids, on and on. Even, you know, what one quote, uh, one thing, I, it's not, this, this data point's not in a book, but we recently found, if you're an empty nester, the bigger fan you are, the closer you are with your children, hmm. your report being to children. And there's a wide gap there from those who are not fans who report, you know, being a little bit less close and then those who are very engaged. So, we are circling around all of this and it's like, well, we got to tell the story. We got to right, like, right. this, this is what we got to get. Like, this is a, a, a domain insight that really could shift how we think about it. Cause we, when we talk about sports and sports is entertaining, it is something fun. like, I mean, that Brazil Croatia game that we just like, that was great TV. That was mm -hmm. uh, people crying at the end and celebrating. Um, like, like there's so many elements to it, but we get to talk about that. 
And that we found like that is the actual benefit. And because sports is always there, we, we can set our clock to it. And um, we always have these opportunities to connect with other people. And so to getting to the book is like, well, let's push this further. If this is true, if fans have more friends, and so and we've proved this out, and we were we we were really confident in this that these distances that we we lay out in the book are are traumatic, then it shouldn't stop there. And yeah. so that's where we got to when you talk about a motivation is like this can shift because oftentimes our, our cultural conceptions of being a sports fan is broish, it's fatuous, it's the guys getting into fights at games, um, face painters, ridiculous behavior. Or, you know, we use the anecdotes in the book of uh, of Putty um, from Seinfeld when he paints his face and uh, Elaine bumps, you know, and, and sees it and says it's insane. But that is like our, our cultural conception. And we felt there was something far more richer, far more noble in, in and maybe shift the way we talk about being a sports fan. Oh, that's that's great. So when I looked at the book on Amazon and I read some of the description and reviews and stuff, there was something that really struck me. And I want to read it to you verbatim. I'm sure you know it because I'm sure you've studied that page, <laughs> every word on it. Um, the book, and we're referring, of course, to fans have more friends. The book is about the power of belonging. Research shows that 61% of Americans feel lonely, misunderstood, and left out. And those are the numbers before the isolation caused by the pandemic. There's also evidence that loneliness can impact your physical health. So how do we go from being lonely to belonging? Becoming a sports fan may be the first step. So th that, that was quite provocative. And I was thinking as I was reading that about how, I'm sure you guys uh, researched these aspects beyond sports, about the nature of uh, societal institutions kind of breaking down, um, less mm -hmm. participation in organized religion, less participation in civic activities, things like that. And yes, we can probably blame some of that on the very difficult few years we had because of the pandemic, but the trend lines were already uh, going in that direction yeah. before the pandemic. And you do get the sense that for many, the thing that kind of is the has substituted for all those other things is their sports interests and fandoms where there are things that mimic institu other institutions, including religious experiences, which is perhaps meeting once a week in person with fellow yep. thinkers uh, and enthusiasts, actually celebrating, making each other feel good and things like that. So, um, did you think about that as as you were kind of delving into this, the analogs that were happening around other parts of our society? Yeah, so I, I talked before, like one of the things we want to push back against was this cultural conception of uh, the fatuous fan. Right. And the other thing was what was going on in culture today. The loneliness was was increasing. Polarization is increasing. Right. Uh, trust in institution mm -hmm. decreasing. And, you know, the... the almost an accident or, or or the COVID created an opportunity to explore some of these things for us. So, well, you know, one example um, was uh, uh, April, 2020, we're sitting there, there's, you know, I do a lot of face-to-face, -face. I do ethnographies, I do focus groups, I travel the country, talk to sports fans everywhere. Um, obviously that was not happening when COVID started. 
So we, we ran surveys of, of the general population um, and really tried to explore, there's a lot of dialogue about uh, polarization and how um, Democrats and Republicans were approaching COVID differently. It had been, it, it was a public health issue that all of a sudden got polarized. Um, and so we were curious as to see how this would manifest against sports fans and how sports fans were feeling without like the first time ever, no sports. And what we saw, what was interesting, um, that we saw a similar divide in uh, or, or a similar trend in the public polling data that Democrats were more likely to um, take wearing a mask or social distancing seriously than Republicans. Um, but what we also, what struck us was the bigger sports fan you were, so as you moved into our kind of our engagement scale, the more likely you were to take those matters seriously. The more likely you were to mask, the more likely you were to take social distancing seriously. Mm -hmm. And what it got really interesting for us and really set us, set us down to like, now we actually have something to write a book about. Um, granted, we have to explore a bunch of other things, which I'll, I'll get into, is Democrats were, were higher. I'm, I'm doing the visual, but this is a, mm -hmm. all voice. Democrats had a, a higher baseline on these measures, Republicans lower. But when you look and you break them out by how how engaged of a fan they are, the trend lines all move positively. So mm -hmm. your non-fan Republican would have had a very low um, likelihood or interest or um, uh, would take wearing a mask seriously. But the, those that we you know we call in the book high value fans would take it far more seriously. So the trend line was was moving in that positive direction, and we didn't have an answer why. This is April 2020. We're like, what? Well, this doesn't make sense. Um, so we, you know, we began exploring that and that trend line held and it held through once vaccines were, uh, were, uh, um, being introduced. Um, you are more likely to be vaccinated, the bigger fan you were, um, you know, over time, it kind of evened out, um, but, and where the divide was, was between non-fans and fans and all this, you know, kind of jumping ahead is because you mentioned this is these were all being a sports fan is a signal of engagement with society. So what? So on COVID was a very acute example of this, but more likely to register vote. The bigger fan you are, the more likely you are to register to vote. Um, the bigger fan you are, the more likely you to get to charity. Um, the more likely you to, to uh, travel abroad, to uh, eat foods from uh, restaurants of different cultures. Um, on and on. There's there's just in every measure we've seen, we've seen sports fans or being a sports fan as a signal of greater engagement in society. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the book. That, that's a very, very interesting aspect of this that I hadn't thought about, how it might correlate to other types of behavior. And, and the reason, you're just talking to people. Right. Like, right. You're watching the World Cup. You go talk about Brazil, Croatia, or you have the, the guy at the office who's from, who's from Croatia mm -hmm. or and have those conversations. And right. that just, it opens you up. This is I, a lot of this stuff that we we write about or the trends that we see among sports fans are, are likely unconscious mm -hmm. for, for many mm -hmm. of us. Um, mm -hmm. Some, we, we doc, we tell stories. So it's, uh, there's a lot of data in, in our book. We've done dozens of surveys that we, we've used as, as making our case here, but we tell stories of people we've met along the way, whether they were conscious of using sports as that tool to connect with others or unconscious of it. Um, Many, uh, many realize that they, they actually have a power, like being a sports fan is actually social power for you and, and use it that way. Yeah. So, well, the, the question I was going to ask, I want to get to in a second, but as a quick follow up on that, did the data show any significant differences between the, the demographic groups 
uh, let's just go on age, for example, let's say Gen Z versus Boomer with some of these issues. Um, so yes, so so there, there's there's age divides where you would suspect um, mm -hmm. in, in these things. So uh, later in the book, to to jump ahead to something like um, when the social justice protests broke out in 2020, we began measuring attitudes towards the the protest movement, uh, attitudes towards Black Lives Matter. How you just just standard approval question, mm -hmm. and the same trend holds. The bigger fan you are. The more likely um, you are to approve of, of those in, uh, those those mo the movement, and right. then when you broke out between Democrats and Republicans, because we are polarized in race in this country, um, Democrats were much higher um, higher approval. But the bigger fan you were, uh, the higher the approval. We have one chart. It's a you know we hired a designer because we, we're we're sharing a lot of data in the book, so we hired an artist basically. Um, to design um, some of these, to just to play with the data visualization. And so we have one spread that to me is what I'm most proud of. It's um, approval of the social justice protest movement. And, and on one side is Democrats with, with the high approval. And then we go across every demographic cut. Um, and so these things break out where you're younger, you're gonna, your approval is going to be higher. You're female, your approval is going to be higher. Um, education. And then all the way to uh, white working class and where, where those things, where those trend lines go. But in every single one of those cuts, the, those cuts, the trend line is the same. The baseline might be different. The Republicans or white evangel rural white evangelicals that we put all the way to the, to the right have the biggest movement because they start from non-fans with the lowest baseline. So th the point to, to answer your question is, yes, these break out. The, the baselines may shift based on a generation's orientation, but the movement among sports fans does not change it, or, or, or moves. And if the baseline is lower, the movement's greater. Yeah. And, and similar to that thought on the differences with demographics, did you notice any differences with the different sports in the mix. So thinking about like just the United States, I, I assume this was mostly focused on the United States. It was hundred percent US. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So we think we think about the pecking order of sports in terms of power and influence. NFL number one. Yep. Uh NBA and MLB probably close even in the second. Okay, college football I'm sorry, there, college yeah. football is a one A for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well it's a, the, I the way I, I characterize that, yes. Yeah. So we look at the major sports um Across and you know we these are accommodate we've been doing surveys for 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 a bit um, on these but NFL is just it's in a tier of its own and right. it, it doesn't really need much explanation yeah. if you're if, yeah. if you're listening to this podcast you probably know that <laughs> um, then after that, that second tier it's a pretty interesting second tier of MLB NBA and college football right. and depending on how we measure engagement or or whatever um, or the attitudes around it they're all like in that kind of in competition, like shoulder to shoulder there. Then uh, NCAA basketball and NHL um, follow underneath um, that. Like a, yeah. they form that next, that third tier. Right, but what I was getting at was, let, let's take two in particular. Well, we, we can talk about the top ones because there's different, there's different cadences, there's different vibes, there's a different mm -hmm. thing about each sport yeah. based on the amount of games, based on the time of the day parts, the level of scarcity, et cetera. So I'll, I'll, I'll just um, frame it this way. I, I was not a lifetime soccer fan until uh, about 10 years ago, and I got into Premier League. You and I talked about that prepping for the, for the show. I had no idea there were these bars in Manhattan where, where I had spent a lot of years living and, and working there my whole career. 
that there were all these bars essentially informally designated as bars for individual teams, you know, like Liverpool right. or Arsenal or whatever. Nor did I have any idea there were bars that were designated for specific college football teams or NFL teams or something like that. When you think about football, back to my point about this, perhaps to some degree being a proxy for things like organized religious experiences, like going to a service, mm -hmm. what, what do they have in common? Well, that's once a week. It's a couple of hours yep. and people want to physically often be together, which yep. is one reason why tailgating in football, such a big part of the tradition. And by the way, my I, I went, since I used to work for the league, I've been to a zillion tailgate parties, but honestly, what I remember most about all that stuff are the tailgate parties because, you know, it's rare you get a great game, let's say, uh, mm -hmm. when you're just visiting randomly. But anyway, so did you notice or can you comment on those kind of behavioral differences, even soccer like World Cup? I'm sure every bar in Manhattan that is showing World Cup is just packed right now because we're in, in the middle of the quarter finals. Um is that is that as big a factor that as opposed to let's say baseball 162 games and it's not quite as each one is not quite as special? Yeah, I think um, so. There, there are a couple ways to, to answer this question. Um, one of the features in our um, in our methodology and how we actually calculate how engaged a fan you are, um, and this is just from on the ground. We vetted this and tested this, and you know, and saw it play out in the real world. Is the more sports you're a fan of the bigger fan you'll be of each of those sports. So I could predict your NFL fandom engagement based on your, your engagement with other sports. Um, and, yeah. and so some of these effects that we see happening, the positive effects in terms of, you know, attitudes on race, attitudes, uh, you know, during COVID and trusted institutions um, that we write about um, are factors of you are immersing yourself in different subcultures, right? You're, you have a very acute subculture going to a Liverpool bar. Um, I, I've been to those. Like the, yeah. it, it, it is a different vibe than when you're going on NFL Sunday and there's you know tables of fantasy leagues uh, right. uh, set up there. Different vibe than you know sitting at a baseball game. Different vibe mm -hmm. than going go to NBA game. And they're all subtle. Like we take these for granted as the the American sports fan, but they're actually a neat, an interesting feature that we get to immerse in these separate cultures. You know, subtly different cultures, but we also have a, like your Liverpool friends. You're a Liverpool. Yeah, I've been, I've been to Carragher's uh, for Champions League games and I've never seen passion like I've seen there ever. Right. And it gives you a different subset right. of people that if you're, you know, if you're a Yankees or a Jets fan right. or, or a Giants right. fan, um, you would have a different set of friends. Mm -hmm. And just if you think of it practically, um, they break out the, the different social circles. So that's just one feature of as you kind of move up our scale, you likely are adding more and more sports to your portfolio. Um, and the the NFL owns the the party, right. the, the get together, right? right? It is the best get together right. sport, right? Because it is it's great for TV. Mm -hmm. Grandma to grandson can come in there, have fun. You make the dip. You put out like it. Just, it just it is convenient for let's let's get the family together let's get the neighbors together and lots of downtime to to hobnob to talk. and have fun yeah, yeah. no exactly well, what would you think about that and right. it doesn't matter if you right. know or whatever it is and th that's the magic of the nfl right it is that once a week it uh, it enables an event you couldn't do that for baseball right, right. like you go crazy yeah. like for that yeah. uh they are what baseball does well is we can go to a game we'll know a lot about each other 
Mm-hmm. We'll connect. Yeah. Uh, like, how are things going to work? How are things going? Uh, Columbia, what are you? Right. What's going on there? Um, tell me about you know growing up in Long Island. That happens at a baseball game. Right. It doesn't happen at an NBA game because there's constant movement right. and excitement. Right. So I, I think in our you know quantitatively what you know what we see manifest dem- the demographics that you know about that the NBA is more diverse and younger and baseball and college football are older and whiter. Th- those kind of manifest. But what we found more on a, a qualitative standpoint of of the the structure of the game determines how we interact with the game um, mm-hmm. when it's on and how it is and you know and I, I would even argue as a as a baseball being my primary and as a Yankees fan there's the regular season which is casual and take and then there's the playoffs which is a whole nother like emotional roller coaster that you're on when yeah. you're watching because you know when you have 162 games nothing matters. Uh, you know, you're, you're playing the, you're on a journey. Um, you're going on that journey and there's a narrative that's unfolding and you're, you're kind of part of that narrative. Um, so yeah, I, I think sometimes we, we talk about each of the sports as they're all the same. Um, like an example would be star power, like the NBA, NBA has star power. Baseball doesn't, right. People right. can't recognize Mike Trout. Um, right. everyone knows the, you know, Donovan Mitchell, uh, everyone right. knows who, you know, again, I, I'm from Elmsford, so Donovan's from Elmsford, and, um, <laughs> there. So I don't want to put him down as a, yeah. you know, a second uh, or a third uh, rung in in terms of uh, NBA talent. Um, but we have to understand NBA when you're watching games, that camera is on LeBron 66 percent of the time, mm-hmm. right? Right during Shohei's pitching, you might see a little bit more of him when he's DH. You see him for. Yeah, less five than minutes, a couple minutes. Right, I was going to say less than, probably less than 10 minutes. Like, you know, minutes. LeBron's tattoos, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right? The definitely like the, the styles, everything yeah. you, you get with the, and the NBA is just so well because of the nature of that game and the di- dynamic nature of the players and the fact you could see them tattoos, biceps and all mm-hmm. um, and outfits on the, on the bench. It, it just, it just, it provides an opportunity for connection with the players for the, for the culture of the league that the other sports you know, don't have just because of the structure of the game. Yeah. Dave, what about the changing nature of fandom that we talked about in the prep call? And also I referenced Sports Innovation Lab when I opened the show. They did a report a couple years ago called The Fluid Fan, which is all about the changing nature of young fans, particularly Gen Z, how they're not necessarily watching full games the way the other generations watch full games. They're, in certain cases, more loyal to players than they are to teams. NBA might be an example of that. And some of that can be attributed to the rise of the popularity of fantasy sports and now betting in the states where it's legal. Um, talk about that. Like, are, are some of the things that have come into play in our sports, let's call it our, our sports consumption world and our sports information world, let's talk about betting, fantasy, the highlight culture that we live in, et cetera. Does that seem to be changing this too or having a counter effect to the familial kind of community thing that you were talking about? So I I, I get this question and I wish I could go back and recreate my surveys back into the 1980s and uh, have a a definitive (laughs) answer on how this changed. Yeah. Because the, the ground has shifted in our culture where we used to have TV shows that we all watched and now we don't. We used to have music that we all listened to and now that's less so. Mm. Um, And sports has become the thing to connect over. Um, The one thing that is, is neutral. It's, 
and I say this as a devoted sports fan and working in the business, it's meaningless, right. um, but so meaningful at the same time. Right. Um, they're crying in Brazil right now. Um, <laughs> all, all these things that have shifted. And what, what also has shifted to, to our conversation or to your question here is how we consume right. um, has changed. You have, you can, you can, I'm, I'm watching the World Cup um, on my laptop at, at work. Right. Um, that, you know, 20 years ago, that was not, not possible. We'd have to go right. to a bar and do those things. And it has become, I, I like the use of the word fluid, that mm -hmm. you could, you're not constrained in, in how you consume. And you miss a game, there's you get the highlights, you get the recap, you'll you'll get a podcast of two guys in a garage talking about um, you know, how Baylor played TCU, and uh, you can have a full analysis uh, available to you. So uh, my answer to that is, I think all those things technology has actually accentuated or has the potential to accentuate the social connection that happens as a result. I Fundamentally, your engagement still is dependent on my friend is, is a fan of this team, I'm a fan of this team, and I'm going into work, or I have, the, I have this group of friends that's a fantasy league, and you're doing it because of those things. Mm -hmm. as, as, you know, as we evidence in the book of like the bigger fan, the more friends. Of like this is the byproduct of of you engaging here. All our new techno technological and platforms, all these tools we have, only allow us to do that in a more fluid manner, and right. and give us the opportunity to engage with somebody. Now, some people may choose to sit in their highlights and be in their basement and never get out. Um, on a population level, what we what we prove out is like, well, that's not the case. Um, there there might be examples of that, and and so. Long, you know, my long answer or short, short version of answer is these new technologies have enabled you to be a better fan. And what that gives you the opportunity to do is to connect with more and more people or connect more frequently with your social circle. So when you talk about something like betting, um, what you know, and we 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 have a chapter. We we talk about the we we try to dispel the. I don't think I have to do this for you. Dispel the myth of uh, you know Tony Soprano is going to come and you know take over right. your uh, right. your uh, um, was it Ramsey uh, um, Sporting Goods or whatever it was called. Yeah, yeah, I remember uh, that. Like, <laughs> yeah. it was a great you know great, great uh, set of episodes. But that, that's not what betting is about. You're not like mortgaging your 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 kids college uh, tuition um off to to bet is it is a thing that pulls you in deeper like if you're right. thinking about the lines for this weekend's games you're thinking about them right. you're 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 listening to podcasts about yeah, this. and you're and, and you're seeking out more information than you might have otherwise and and so then what happens you go into a social uh, and you, and you see a, a Tennessee Titans fan mm -hmm. And then you're you're in a conversation on ins and outs of Tennessee uh, the Titans football, right. which otherwise you would not have because you are you know they're not a national team as, as as some of our other national teams, and you wouldn't care. But betting gives you that knowledge. You might not use it, but when you do use it, you, it actually feels good and it pays off. That you can when when you're in a sports conversation, you can engage with with anyone. It gives you more social muscle. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um... It's it's funny in my class when we talk about early in our semester we talk about just the fundamental nature of content the different uh, parts of content and the different assets that different parts of the ecosystem have and we talk a lot about the most consequential development in content and media history which is the, the expansion of user generated content uh, enabled by digital media mm -hmm. going back to the beginning of web two especially. But I always say the original user-generated content was sports talk radio, yep. which is pretty much the same here in 22 as it was in 1992. Yep. Uh, and, it, and it's kind of reassuring to know that 
if you give fans a mouthpiece, they will grab it and they will share their opinions. So that still exists in the radio. It exists on Twitter, of course. It exists on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, et cetera. But it's almost like that is a constant that never seems to change no, despite all these consumption that, uh, issues. That is my, you know, going back, I, mean, I think that's well said. Um, yeah. that is all, we as humans just want to connect. Right. The the games give us a, a thing to talk about, with each, which is right. completely neutral, and it can lead to how are things going at work? How, is your, how are your kids doing? What's I heard they were having a tough time at school. You know, all those things, right. but the easy way in is like, you know, how about those cowboys? Yeah, uh, how are you feeling about, about those cowboys? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's always a, 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 an easy way in, um, which the beauty of sports, and you know, one of the other. Uh, like benefits of, of of sports as as using that as as uh, talk, I I can I, I'm pretty quiet, um, you know, in kind of day to day. I, I keep to myself, and you know, at, at times I, I have a tend I'm more of an introvert um, than mm -hmm. extrovert. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sports obviously makes me allows me to to uh, to to break out of shell. But if I'm frustrated, I keep it in, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's just and it's it's and it's not good for you to do that. What does sport being a sports fan allow you to do? Like, ask me about Cashman, and yeah. I will vent for an hour about the Yankees <laughs> and uh, and how they've been mismanaged the last twenty years. Yeah, and it it's it's a healthy thing to do. Right. Of uh, you know, because we we get the question of like, are what you finding true of uh, fans of winning teams versus losing teams? And the the answer is it's all the same, mm -hmm. because the the negative. Kind of reactions, the the range of emotions you experience as a uh, sports fan. That's the actual. That's the feature of this. Mm -hmm. Losing, you get to experience losing. You get to experience defeat, your frustration, um, and talking about that with other people is, is talking about sports radio is actually really healthy. Venting, you know, like back in the day, I would you know turn on and listen to Mike and a dog vent about whatever the yeah. Yankees were doing or the Knicks were doing, and. It felt good. It yeah. felt cathartic uh, yeah. in that um, in that respect, and it, it's one of the, like the many features of having this thing that we can all talk about, um, and it actually creates positive human interaction. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, and and you think about the the success. We'll just we'll just use WFN as an example. The success they've had with their ratings, one of the top stations, local stations in America, arguably the top sports talk a top three or five sports talk uh, channel in the business. Um, and it really is fascinating to think that those of us that are listening are willing to hear from strangers mm -hmm. about random talk topics. You know, I, I always joke with my friends and say the, the level of detail and granularity these callers can get into about, you know, arguing passionately about the Mets middle relievers yep. or something like that. It's kind of a remi reminder that there's just this fundamental desire, as you said, to communicate and share. Um, and, and it's probably not just coming from loudmouths and extroverts. It's probably coming from all types because, as you said, it's that thing they they really feel. But, you know, we talk a little bit, um, well, the industry talks a lot about Twitch and something we cover in my class, which was a relatively new thing for us to all suss out over the last eight or nine years. and a lot of a lot of folks say, I can't believe people watch videos of other people playing video games and talking about play, the, playing the video game like in real time. I said, 
and to myself, I'm thinking, well, we listen to other people talk about random things that in the sports world that everybody cares about. So yeah. it, it's like that fundamental behavior, no matter how it's shaped or presented yeah. in digital, <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. No, uh, and I look at like when I watch yeah. major events, like like the, there's um, th this afternoon's game, which will start uh, later. Uh, who's playing this afternoon? Netherlands, I think. Uh, Argentina. Yeah. 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 Big game, obviously. Um, but I very rarely watch without being on Twitter and looking at that key hashtag mm -hmm. for the game. Because mm -hmm. I just love the supplemental insights that I can see. And if yeah. people are vulgar or rude or mean, I'll find another way to do it. So I actually create lists. Like I've got a list that I use. I use lists a lot on Twitter just called soccer. And I have like 12 or 15 of the commentators and media outlets mm -hmm. that, that cover soccer in real time. And so when the game starts, I'll go to my soccer list and I'll see what the, the what I'd call the smart guys are saying about the game. So anyway. Um, yeah, it, it's a dialogue, yeah. right? And so like whether, because all that mimics, like if you had those guys over, that's what you'd be talking about, right? That's what I'm You're saying. You're just having like, a conversation with together, yourself. We're all having a beer and yeah. it's like, hey, hey, Dave, what do you think of that play? <laughs> and, yeah. and you could and you could say he, he probably he probably should have passed it before he shot or something like that. Anyway, um, oh, it's, just shift yeah. shift gears for a minute because I want to ask you um, about the process of writing a nonfiction book. So there's a lot of people that I know that you know probably business folks and folks from other walks of uh, professional life that have gained a certain level of expertise. They have certain viewpoints and they and they say to themselves, "I want to do a book," because obviously there's always there's an endless number of new books, but it takes a lot of work to get over the hump. It's easy to talk about, hard to do. Tell us briefly about the process of actually going through with it, writing the book, finding the publisher, et cetera. Yeah, it, it was, uh, I mean, we were- Because you're, I, to be clear, you're a first time, you're a first time author. First right? time, yeah, first yeah, time, yeah, exactly. right? I haven't written that's anything. That's one reason I want to get your, yeah, that's one reason I want to hear yeah. your perspective. Beyond right? a deck or, you know, a summary presentation. Right, beyond a really clients. good PowerPoint. Right. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, or, that was or, the or extent an essay, of it. maybe, or something, yeah. Yeah, so um, it was, I mean, part of it was us finding our, like, what is our angle in? Um, and, you know, what I've described, like the really more, like what got the book written was the stuff about how how this how these benefits extended beyond and really touched on loneliness and polarization that were plaguing our society. Once we had that and we had our frame, you know, we're, we're strategists. So we had like our target audience was the thinking sports fan. Right? I mean, this you um, is, is the target audience. Um, and so we, we had that in mind and we were, we were thinking about writing it. We, we got connected with Silicon Valley Press and you know, like in the early days of the pandemic, we would we would take, you know, we wrote a what we call a pilot episode. It was an HBR piece on it and went back and forth on that. And, you know, Ben and I work well together. We've been working together for over 10 years. Um, so we just have a nice kind of compatible. We we have overlapping skills and then different skills. And uh, that helped. Right. I, I don't know if I could have done this on my own. Right. Um, having having Ben and kind of bouncing stuff off. He would throw stuff up, whether it's right or wrong. I would build on it. And, and vice versa, or he would like, that's too dense. You gotta explain it uh, clearer. Um, so, but once we started working with Silicon Valley Press, it gave us a structure to operate in. Um, you know, we we had a vision, um, we had an outline. We, we were logical people as strategists, like that's, like that's, we, we could, we know how things, how thoughts connect. So uh, we were confident in our ability to do that. Um, 
and then it was just like trial and error. Like it, it was, is it's almost like getting it wrong is better than not doing anything. Mm -hmm. Um, because at least, you know, that you, you could check that off or, or you, you could restart it. So we began working with Silicon Valley press and then just started churning out. I mean, the good news was we, we had data. We had more data than is imaginable in terms of uh, describing sports fans. Um, we had good stories. There's good, compelling stories of people that are relatable, that are real, that you that prove a point um, or make a, help help us make the point. Um, and we had to do like we read books on on um, political on political science and polarization and and psychology and loneliness. And so we we're pulling all those those threads in. Um, and it was just trial and error and weaving all those threads from, from the data to the stories to the the kind of backup research. Uh, trial and error. And we, Ben and I did a lot of, I would go out to LA where um, he's in Venice and all right, who wants to read? And we would read and like, nope, that's not right. We're not talking about Jennifer the right way. Um, and we, we probably did that the whole book like a dozen times over. Yeah, um, yeah. In that and, did, and I, I and I assume you had an editor assigned from Silicon yeah. Valley Press. Yeah, was that into? No, and she, uh, yeah, and she uh, helped uh, a role in helping the, the structure and things. Yeah, yeah, and it's like there were there were moments where it's like like ah, I need a sentence at the end. Yeah, like how do you get that? Yeah, um, and instead of stressing about trying to be cute and writing something and trying to be like, one of the personal lessons was like, know your lane. Yeah. Like yeah. I'm good with data. I'm good with explaining data. I'm good in kind of finding that nugget, that right. insight, and, and pushing on that. Doing something poetic is not my uh, <laughs> right. not not my thing. So uh, it was, I, I it was a tough and grueling process. Um, yeah. But like it, it, there was a satisfaction at the end. Like we, we were like before we were handing it off. We were just this is it. We did it. Like it is. Uh, yeah. We could write more. You could probably write it in a more poetic way or whatever, but we have it. We believe in it. It's all right. Um, it all stands, um, like, can withstand scrutiny. So uh, we, we're proud of the work. Well, look, I'm good for you for doing it because, again, a lot of people talk about it, but I can just imagine how hard it must be. Is, as you said, it's a grueling process, whatever you're, you're writing about. Uh, how's the reception been? It's been out for uh, three or four weeks. How's it going so It's far? been great. Like yeah. it is one of the, I, I often in my career, I am trying to, I'm bucking conventional wisdom. I'm trying to get mm -hmm. you to think about your business problem in, in a different way based on consumer insight. That is often met with resistance, um, whether because of, you know, things within a, within a business or whatever, like they don't necessarily want to want to hear that, or that's going to require change or, or whatever, or I disagree with you. This has been clean like no one's uh, mm -hmm. there's no pushback there's no uh, like everyone accepts it uh, thinks of it and you know what one of the greatest things on reception uh, you know i said I, we wrote the book for you the thinking sports fan mm -hmm. um it's the non-fans that have come back it's like you've got me to, to rethink uh this i used to think it was just the you know the dumb bros at the office that were there right. and now i see the dumb bros are just trying to connect Right. And, um, and and that has been because we, we you know we were we were like focus we're gonna we're gonna write this for the sports fans so there's many times that we're you know we make references to teams or players we don't explain that because we're assuming you know uh, Pollard you know difference between Zeke and Pollard um, when we're talking about the Cowboys um, so there are moments where where we wrote on this but it, it's the 
you know, the individuals I've met that are non-fans and even some of the, you know, we did a, a live happy podcast and, you know, as the host um, had described to us, it's like, this is middle-aged women or is our, mm-hmm. is our audience here. Mm-hmm. And it was great. Like it was, it was really just like wonderful to talk. And so we have found like there's the, the, the ability to stretch for this concept in it's a book about human connection. And we, we as humans, we all, all want it. And we feel like wherever we've gone or whoever we've taken this to, it's it's been embraced. Right. Um, right. Yeah, no, and, and obviously culturally at a time when there's a lot of discussion about mental health and the feeling of disconnectedness because of the separation, remote work, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. It sounds like the timing is just kind of perfect, actually. So that's yeah, no, that if we were we were anxious in the in COVID, like we gotta get this out. We have to get this out because yeah. it's uh yeah, yeah. um the stage is set. Dave, you you um, you teased the idea of a second book when we chatted yesterday. Could you talk about that uh, briefly, and then and then we'll get into our final segment of the show. Yeah, so I, I'll have the caveat with, with that of uh, you know whatever we were teasing in uh, you know June of twenty twenty right. um, didn't end up being the actual book. Right. So th- this will evolve is, is right. the point. But I, I one thread that we are continuing to pull on is. Um, the next, I mean, you, I, I, it's something you're fascinated by um, from our conversation of, of Gen Z and mm-hmm. the next generation mm-hmm. of fans. We've done recent, uh, both qualitative and quantitative work amongst teens um, and parents of teens and trying to understand how sports operates in there. And just as a side, uh, core data, you know, core kind of foundational data point of our book is bigger fan, more friends. When you look at 13 to 17 year olds measuring fandom, you have to adjust the um, the, the markers a little bit for uh, for the age group, but works the same way. The bigger fan, the more friends. Um, the big from thirteen to seventy year olds, the the bigger fan you are, the closer you report being to your parents, the more likely you are to go on to get a four year degree. Um, you say, at least you say that you're like the four four year degree. And um, you know we we use like a, a personal health questionnaire that's used to gauge depression amongst teens. Um, and so it has a scoring system. So we, we put that into our survey and the bigger fan you are, the less likely you are to, to uh, show symptoms or, or acknowledge symptoms of, of being depressed. And we weren't surprised by this. Um, it was just interesting, you know, going out and, and serving that. So we think there's a, there's an interesting story to tell about um, the next generation of fans, how they connect, how they navigate, whether it's a tech technology, um, different social dynamics um, that that this next generation is dealing with, and how the family deals with that. There's, mm-hmm. it is a, sports is a tool, it's a, it's a social tool, and it's a strong familial tool. I mean, mm-hmm. I have a eight and six year old. It is, uh, there's no better time than seven o'clock on baseball season, right? Yeah. Yankee game is on, we're on the sofa. My wife, who's not a sports fan, has now like been pulled in, but she sees the benefit of this also. Like we're we're just connected. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know, what if Aaron Judge hits 82 home runs? And he's, you know, his he how much better is if you take Aaron Hicks and Aaron Judge? I mean, Aaron Hicks and Joey Gallo is Judge still three times better? And right. the questions of six, and it's there's nothing better. There's yeah. nothing better. Yeah. And we should all, I mean, again, I work in this and I, you know, have the meet, but there's benefits, but it, it's available to all of us. It's accessible to all. And I, I think that that's something that, you know, as a, the next step of taking this is a, a message we want to get out there. 
Yeah, and I guess is it fair to say that the principles of what you're talking about would apply to other areas of interest too? I'm thinking music comes to mind because you have that opportunity to get together physically to go to events. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff in media that you can respond to and talk about. And there's that just kind of joy that exists between like-minded fans of music, yep. uh, getting together and listening together and having a good time. Is that fair to say too? No, my line is we are pro, so this is a book about social connection. We are pro social right. connection. If you find it through right. woodworking, through yoga, through Pearl Jam, anything like it's really good for you. Like you don't have to do this thing yeah. on a societal level. Sports can do something that those other things cannot. Mm -hmm. And what is the scale? Right. It's embedded in our culture. Right. Um, right? You just it, it is universal. Um, even the non-fan mm -hmm. knows something about the NFL. Yeah. Right. Um, right. It, it, and so so what that does, it allows those. Right. You could talk about Game of Thrones um, or the Ramones. Right. And in, when you find a Ramones fan or a Game of Thrones fan, you're in right. and you're in a deep discussion. But the likelihood of finding that versus an NFL fan is, you know, there's a, there's a wide gap. And then the other factor, um, because of that scale, where on a societal level, the benefits of sports fandom is what we talked about uh, in terms of what we position as softening the edges of polarization, mm -hmm. that you saw mm -hmm. attitudes on race, attitudes on COVID, trusted institutions shift, the, the more engaged of a fan you are, and shift against some of those polarized dispositions we have just because of who we are, you know, our, our identity stack as, as, uh, as we talk about in the book. Yeah. So there, there is a superpower that sports has, um, like do all those other things. And, and it's likely that sports fans are doing those other things too. Yeah. Um, but uh, know that, you know, we have, you know, as we're struggling as a country to divided uh, loneliness, increasing people being more and more detached, Sports is an easy antidote, and we all have it, the ability to, like, what are you doing for the Argentina-Netherlands game? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Or text somebody, are you yeah, watching or, this? you know, many of us will probably be on text threads with friends, like-minded yeah. friends, and you're, you're doing the same thing we said before. You're, you're, you want to talk. You want to share your opinion. You want to vent. Uh, whatever. Whatever you... And it's all healthy for you. It's really... It's just, uh, it's... Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the whole... Uh, uh, as we call it, dark social part of sports is enormous. I mean, I, 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 most of the stuff I do with live events is is through te text messaging. It's not it's not on Twitter or something like that. Even though I might yeah. be looking at Twitter, I'm not necessarily interested in actually interacting with strangers on random sports opinions. But I will do that with my friends. All right, wow, that's really good stuff. So let me um, let's finish up with a couple of questions unrelated to the book, or but you can tie it back if you'd like that uh, I warned you about. The mm -hmm. first one is we like to ask all our guests if, um, or not if, how they're keeping up with everything. What are they listening to? What are they reading? You obviously have these interests as a strateg marketing strategist, as a consultant, because you, know, you obviously need to be on top of things. You also had to probably find a source of insight for your, your all the work you did to prepare for the book. So how are you getting the, how are you getting all the information? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. Um I you alluded to part of it is I my sharpness I have the good fortune of uh I have a job that keeps me sharp. I have mm -hmm. I have to come up with something. I have to come up with an insight. Right. Right. Exactly. It's a lot of pressure to do it. And yeah. I yeah. and I use data 
um, whether mm -hmm. it's you know thick data in terms of uh, doing ethnographies and having like rich descriptions of people versus quantitative data, whether it's mm -hmm. you know, behavioral or, or or surveys I'm doing. And I, I think that just keeps me in a mindset of always pushing my thinking. If I wish I had like some like noble, like I'm, you know, read New Yorker cover to cover by Tuesday yeah. morning when I get it and all that stuff. Right. I, I, I think with the Twitterfication of uh, how we get information, um, I, as you said, you have lists and you have people you trust right. and you go down those lists and, and, and follow those people mm -hmm. um, there. Like in the book, it just, it forced us to read about lonely. I wasn't game to be re reading about loneliness. That would have come my, my way, but right. it was a thread we were pulling on yeah. and, and took us there. You know, we, we went down, uh, you know, we, we talk about this uh, concept from psychology of a uh, social identity complexity, mm -hmm. um, which came when we were reading books on political scientists or Klein's, um, how, why we're polarized and got into this. And then we're into some, you know, psychology journals and trying to decipher um, what that is. So the way I stay sharp is just I continue to pull on threads and I have a job that is the job is to pull on threads. Yeah. Interesting. I just thought of something before I go to the next question that um, I hadn't thought about. I'm sure, you know, a lot of what you've gotten into is the world of uh, social psychology, um, which is a phrase that many of us weren't familiar with, I think for, at least I wasn't for a long time. And then guys like Malcolm Gladwell, like, I don't know if you'd call him a social psychologist, but Adam Grant is probably the mm -hmm. best known one. I'm sure you, you, yep. you've seen his stuff. And when I realized the kind of stuff he was doing, I started to pay attention because it, I started to connect the dots of my world of media and digital and behavior, sports, et cetera. And it is interesting to think that these social psychologists are doing the kinds of things you've been talking about uh, that, that were uh, that were embedded in the book mm -hmm. in a in a professional way, you know, 365 days a year. Like that's their thing yeah. to do social psychology. I find that stuff quite interesting and helpful to round out the view of uh, a specific sector of business, let's say. Yeah, uh, Adam Grant is great. His, interesting uh, component, yeah. yeah. On Twitter, he's um, Okay, and then um, two parts of the last question about career advice. One is a general, uh, you know, you had a, you had a successful corporate career at, uh, as I mentioned, Modem, Publicis, NBC, MSG. You've also built your own consulting business and you've also become an author. So the two questions. General advice for career development, particularly for young people getting going. And I want you to mention, by the way, and I neglected to do this in your direction, the, the work you're doing at Columbia to help mm -hmm. the young people at, in, in SPS. Um, and then the second part would be any quick advice for professionals who are thinking about taking the plunge into doing a nonfiction book. Ooh. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> uh, Maybe the answer is don't do it. But, no, I, you, you can say. <laughs> I, I think if you, I'll, I'll take that one first because it's a. Uh, okay. I, I, I I can't expound on it too much. Of, right. if you believe in something, if you got something, um, lean into it, do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think our story is like we where we ended up is not where we expected. Um, yeah. There and and pushing and pushing and you know what writing a book is going to get you to do is. If no one bought a book, and I know this is this is my last podcast ever, um, my last media appearance, um, <laughs> it was still beneficial for me doing this. Right. Like I am better, I am sharper, I am more confident, I uh, I am going to be a better strategist going forward. So that's a good, um, that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean right. it's it, it's it's a real benefit to the author, I think, in the world of nonfiction. Yeah, like, you're right. you, you you obviously put in hundreds or thousands of hours to do this, which only accrued to your benefit of understanding the world you know that you're working in. Yeah. So. 
And that is, that's powerful. Like it's yes. given me power. Yeah. I'm not making money off of this. You don't yeah. write a book for money. Um, right. And fame is like, a, at least I get on a, a, a podcast now. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's great, which I enjoy right. thoroughly and talking right. about this, I enjoy. Yeah. But really the real benefit of doing it is for you and it's uh, your own self-actualization. So um, yeah. do it. If you, if you, if you have something, um, you'll, you'll feel as anything that's grueling there, there can be a benefit at the end. Yeah, yeah, okay, and, and so tie in the Columbia involvement to the first answer then yeah. about general advice for young people. Yeah, so um, I, I had a respondent in, in some of the research we were doing early on, so I'm going to borrow from him, even though um, whether it comes back to him is like your net worth is your network. Mm-hmm. Um, my career trajectory was based on the relationships I made um, along the way. I'll do a quick anecdote if I, we have time for sure, it. Sure, of course. Um, yeah. Since you're, you live in Westport and no Motomedia back in the days when I was uh, in East Norwalk, um, I, I, I started at uh, Motomedia in 2002. And so that was after the dot com bust, um, right. so to speak. The, the bubble and, bust. Yeah. And this was a, it was like a nice loft space that they had um, uh, in East Norwalk, Connecticut. And I come in, I start this job and there's like three floors. It's, you know, beautifully designed a third, like it was like a bomb hit. Um, it was all the layoffs happened and I come in work in the accounting department and it is like, there's just on a decline and like the energy's bad, everything. And here I am, I, you know, and I was 30 when I, when I started my career. So I was, you know, I waited on tables before that, um, was excited to be there. And it's just like, ah, and so what, what do I do? I was like, well, I'm going to just, I, I can't leave. I'm going to like start connecting with people. And which is again, me being the extrovert, uh, the introvert um, right. was, was not my disposition. And the way I did that was, and this is going back to tying in the message of the book was I knew some people on sports. We talked, you know, cause you're bleeding into, uh, you know, Patriot and Red Sox territory. So we debate Yankees, Red Sox, talk about Patriots, Jets and Giants and and on. And I had sports conversations around the office, which I was not conscious of Mm -hmm. at the time. I was just having conversations with people. And then somebody came to me, he's like, you should manage the uh, softball team. We have a co-ed softball team. Take it over. I was like, I I can't do it. And like, all right, I'll do it for the purpose of meeting people. And on softball game days, I would run that off, walk around that office. I, I wouldn't work. I would literally talk to office to cubicle meeting people do you play getting you your play? lineup card ready no so literally like i'm begging to <laughs> right. fill out my lineup lineup card and so you know i do a season of that and then then came the somebody else came to me is like you should do the basketball team too so I, I do the men's basketball team and so what happened was i developed relationships with people across the office and there were people in the consumer insights group who were you know conversant in sports and then i i developed connections with Long story short, one guy who was on my basketball team is giving me notice that he's leaving. He can't play anymore. He took a job in the city. And I'm like, you know what? I should take your job. Did it like had no, like, I don't know where that came from in, inside me. Um, but he's like, yeah, you should talk to my boss. And so then on his going away party, I went up to his boss and said, I start on Monday. And, you know, we were friendly or whatever because of because of the the teams. And He's like, oh my God, you'd be perfect. A month later, I had to go through some political stuff internally. I was there. And that kind of started me in this kind of, is this, in doing consumer insights and strategy mm-hmm. work. I, and mind you, I had no qualifications for that role other than I was connected to people and they saw me manage right. um, an internal social event um, uh, year round mm-hmm. that kind of gave me some credibility to do it. And, and so 
the thing, and it kind of answering the other question that 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 your your net worth is your network. So stay connected to people and just on personal levels, you know, get to know people because they're gonna come in handy when you, you know, when you write that nonfiction book and you need to get on a podcast and get connected, is like <laughs> these are gonna be important. So yeah. Keep people close Shout to you. Shout out to Rick Wolf, by the way. Yes, yes. A wonderful guy. Yeah. Uh, keep keep these things close. Keep these things close. And so one thing that I I had an old MSG colleague um, who is are taking part in the uh, SPS uh, Capstone mm -hmm. uh, project as a research associate. She came to me in the summers like they, they need more research associates here. You'd help with the this kind of final project as you're kind of get your master's in strategic communications and you can help them on and coaching on research, doing qualitative and quantitative research and turning it into strategy. And my, my reaction is like, it would be just great to be on campus at Columbia and being a, at a learning institution to just elevate your game. But talking to students, engaging with students, explaining kind of, you know, sharing my stories and, you know, maybe like, uh, like uh, let them stop talking or, but it, it, it is, it, there's a joy in it. Like yeah. it really, like I have a, uh, this was my first semester and I left that class. I, I like, I couldn't go to sleep yeah. um, because I was so amped up from just being there, being part of the energy and just, just talking. And yeah. um, the, those are great things. It, it kind of, it all goes back to the same thing of just being connected with other people, exchanging ideas and thoughts um, only works good for you. Yeah. Only works out for you. Wow. Yeah. That's, that. that's great. Well, well said about the experience of working with young people. It really is. Uh, quite enter, um, invigorating, I would say. Uh, yeah, no, that, that's and, that exactly. And I, and I think as you're getting older, it's, it's especially important to uh, maintain that more balanced perspective demographically age, uh, yeah. in terms of age, stuff like that. Wow, great stuff, Dave. Uh, really enjoyed the convo. So um, how can everybody find the book? It is uh, anywhere you get the your usual, books. Um, the usual places, I assume. Yeah, yeah uh, as you're okay. probably more likely to find uh, digitally than uh, than at your local Barnes and Noble, so right. um, or your local bookstore. So uh, uh, any of the digital providers will will have a, will have our book. Okay, and fans, yeah, fans have more friends, and uh, you can find us on fanshavemorefriends.com. Yeah, I was going to ask about a website for the book, and then are, do do you have anything you'd want to mention about your social media presence? Yeah, um, um, on Twitter, um. D Sikoriak, so it's D S I K O R J A K. Um, I am being brought into Twitter. Um, I'm a novice uh, right now, so I uh, okay. has haven't been as active. Um, ben, my co-author, has been a little bit more active um, in that regard. Right. But um, you know, one of the things of being an author is like you know you have to try different things. Um, yes. and, yeah. it, and, and I'm sure the publishers with... are pushing the authors to do yeah. the active in social media. That yeah. seems to be part of the so, game. Our activity is uh, is is increasing there. Um, yeah. All right, great. Okay. Well, so we'll we'll see you. Uh, your Twitter blow up as this gets more popular. That, that's, yes, that's uh, please. Thank you. Residual benefit of yes. publishing the book. Um, all right, everybody. We've been talking to David Sikoriak, uh, who uh, just published this really interesting book. As we uh, got into it, I, I, I'm even more fascinated by the topic. Fans have more friends. I urge everybody to check it out. Check out David, reach out to David if you want to talk, whatever. It sounds like he's open to that as he tries to get some uh, publicity for the book, which is a which is a great thing. Um, I think that my favorite part of the conversation, David, other than the very interesting deep dive into the book itself, was your, your line, your net worth is your network and the importance of connecting. And that, of course, relates to the issue that we got into.
uh, for the yep. book itself. So thank you for sharing that. That was really good advice. No problem. We appreciate everybody listening. Appreciate Cindy behind the scenes producing. If anybody needs to reach out to me or Joe or the program, please do so. I'm at, at Convergence TR. Joe at Joe Fav. Everybody knows any ideas for guests or show topics. We're all ears. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.